Uh, If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the fourth chapter of the book of Esther. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on the back table. We'd love to give you one if you don't own a Bible. If you ever have uh, difficult finding the book of Esther, there's no shame in using the, uh, the table of contents in the front. If you are just joining us, uh, today marks week four of our nine-week series in this amazing book. We're in a series entitled Faith Among the Faithless. I made a comment last week, and I, and I, and I stick to it, that it seems that that there's a lot more faithlessness happening in Persia at this time than, than faith. Uh, as we have looked at this, this true story, this, this historical story, it's a story that so far has been filled with power and, and, and war and greed and betrayal and, and sex and compromise. And if you're thinking, well, this sounds more like an episode of Jerry Springer than it does a book of the Bible, you would not be entirely altogether wrong Uh, I mean, I can guarantee you that the name of God is used more on Springer than it is in this book. God's name is never mentioned in this book. His name is never mentioned, not once. (laughs) The events of this uh, this story... Uh, th- th- this, this story was recorded in about mid-4th century B.C., as we have been reminded of each week. So we're talking roughly 400 or so years before the birth of Christ. Now, if you, again, are just joining us, I want to take a couple of minutes and just give you the situation, all right? So about 100 years before this story takes place, God's people, the Jews, had been seized and deported from Jerusalem to Babylon under the influence of King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. This all took place in 587 BC. I'm a history nerd. Maybe you are. We can all kind of celebrate these things together. So after the, uh, after the Jews are exiled to Babylon, fast forward about 50 years later, and Nebuchadnezzar is defeated by the Persian king Cyrus the Great, who remarkably offers to let all of the Jews go home. Uh, but instead of doing so, uh, many of the Jews chose to not only remain in exile, they moved even further away from Jerusalem uh, to live and to work in the Persian capital of Susa, which is the city in which this story takes place, this story of Esther. And so at this time of this story, Persia is in fact the greatest, most affluent empire the world has ever seen. It's no longer being ruled by Cyrus the Great, but Cyrus the Great's grandson, King Ahasuerus, who is also known as Xerxes. If you are read up on Greek uh, history, they refer to him as Xerxes. Well, we refer to him as Ahasuerus because that's what the text says. And at the time of this story, throughout all of his life, Ahasuerus thought he was God. And we saw in chapter 1 the kind of parties that he would throw in order to convince everyone else that he was God. At the end of chapter 1, when his wife, Queen Vashti, refused to worship him as God and be paraded around in front of all of Ahasuerus' drunk friends, Ahasuerus, remember, he banished her from his presence And then in between chapters 1 and 2, from other history books, we learn that Ahasuerus actually begins and loses a war with the Greeks. 
And so by the time chapter two came around, we looked at this a few weeks ago, chapter two picked up the story with Ahasuerus' attendants, the palace attendants, trying to cheer him up after this loss to the Greeks. And they did so by human trafficking. They trafficked every young, beautiful virgin from around the empire, forced them into the king's harem, and among these young virgins is where we first met our story's main character, Esther, who is a Jewish woman whose deceased parents should have returned to Jerusalem, as the prophet Isaiah had earlier urged, and you know, after Nebuchadnezzar was defeated, her parents ought to have returned to Jerusalem, but because they didn't, before they passed away, Esther, our main character, has been raised in Persia by her older cousin Mordecai, where she had essentially been taught to hide her Jewish identity, like Mordecai, with the purpose of blending in to the surrounding pagan Persian culture. In fact, this was uh, most likely the strategy of most of the Jews who remained in Persia. And depending on which scholars you read, uh, it, the Jewish population in Persia could have been anywhere from 50,000 to 500,000, some estimate even up into a million Jews continuing to live willingly in exile in Persia under the influence of King Ahasuerus. Now, at the end of, uh, let's see here. Well, no, so, so Esther got selected for the king's harem. We remember that. And at the end of chapter two, when she was called into the, the king's bedroom, she maintains her secrecy, you know, keeping a, a lid on the fact that she is, in fact, a Jew. And she ends up impressing Ahasuerus so much that he selects her to be queen in Vashti's place. And also at the end of chapter two, what we saw was this situation which Mordecai, so Esther's older cousin and guardian, he overhears those two men, Big Than and Teresh, plotting to assassinate the king. So the cousin Mordecai, right, he's some form of a government employee. He works at the king's gate. When he intercepts this news, he immediately sends word to Esther, who informs her new husband, King Ahasuerus. Well, the king is saved, and then we learn last year that years go by, and it seems that the whole ordeal is seemingly forgotten. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, we saw this last week, a man named Haman, is uh, he enters the scene, he's King Ahasuerus's new right-hand man, and, and Ahasuerus issues this decree that everyone in Persia, no matter your, you know, your religion, religious affiliation, everyone in Persia is to bow in respect to Haman, and everyone does except for Mordecai. Mordecai uh, doesn't bow, his, his, conscious, his conscience is, is torn, he, he just can't do it. And, and Haman took notice of this last week. He noticed Mordecai's disrespect and when Mordecai claims that it's his Jewishness as, as the reason that he can't bow, Haman in his fury, what does he do? He, 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 he writes up this decree, gets approval from the king to annihilate every man and woman and child who is a Jew in the entire kingdom because, I, because Mordecai did not bow. And, and this is what egotistical maniacs do, right? And, and we learn because Haman is an Agagite that he in fact comes from a long line 
of egotistical, even anti-Semitic maniacs that date all the way back to King Agag and 1 Samuel 15 and Amalek and Exodus 17. If you were here last week, maybe you remember that. P.S., I was thinking about this this week. I would love to find out if Hitler is somehow related to the Agagites. Wouldn't you? Like, what an interesting study that would be, his vendetta against the Jewish people. And so that's just a complete aside to get everybody's minds wandering for, for a second. Now come back. Come back with me. This is where we left off last week. Haman announced, you know, that every Jewish man, woman, and child is going to be put to death in 11 months' time. On the 13th day of the 12th month, all of this was approved by the king. That brings us, believe it or not, all the way up to Esther chapter 4. Would you follow along as I read? When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes." When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe, clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and, all the, and, and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is God's word. Let's pray together.
Father, there is, again, a lot here. Give us your grace to hear what it is you want to speak to us today. Um, change us, Lord. We want that the end of, of all of this, uh, we, we, would, we would desire to be transformed into Jesus' likeness, that we would be edified in our spirit, and that we would glorify you, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I love the movie, The Sandlot. Have you seen this movie? Summer is coming. It is the, it's the season when I will watch this multiple times. It's the story, if you've not seen it, a group of boys who form a backyard baseball team in the 60s. They accidentally hit this baseball signed by Babe Ruth over the fence of the infamous Hercules. We remember, right? It's this dog that's rumored to be so big and so ravenous that he has allegedly eaten several kids from the neighborhood. Now, the whole movie is essentially about these boys banding together, scheming up every possible plan and contraption possible to get this ball back. I mean, they spend days scheming and strategizing and executing various plans, but to no avail. Now, spoiler alert, at the very end of the movie, after they've risked their lives, uh, exhausting every idea and effort, the owner of the home comes out of the house and he simply says, well, why didn't you just knock on the door? I would have gotten the ball for you. It's this hugely climactic slash anticlimactic moment that these dudes have just worked so hard by the sweat of their brow all summer trying to figure out how to get this baseball. And it made me think, and it, and it ties into this text, I believe, brilliantly. Here's a question for you. When calamity strikes in your life, whether it be you lose a Babe Ruth autographed baseball or something actually more legit. When calamity strikes in your life, church, what is the first thing that you do? Do you run to, to scheming and planning and exhausting every bit of your own human effort possible? Or metaphor still attached here, do you go to the front door and you ask the owner, um, we're going to tease this out just a minute. If you're a note taker, I have three points that we're going to be under for the rest of our time. Uh, the first is we're going to look at the mercy of calamity. I'll explain that. The second we're going to look at is, uh, second point is the mistake of planning over praying. And the third is the longing for a better mediator. And our morning is jam-packed, and so I'm just going to dive in to point one, the mercy of calamity. Uh, get your nose in, your, in the Bible. Look at what happens when Haman's genocidal plan hits the streets of Persia. Verse one, right off the bat, Mordecai tears his clothes off. He dresses himself with this charred ash and these very uncomfortable clothes called sackcloth. He wanders out in the streets of the city kind of like a crazy person, like wailing and weeping. And of course, we, it doesn't take much to imagine. We would likely do the same if we were told that, 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 that we and our entire family was going to be murdered, executed, killed in, in 11 months, all because we didn't bow in respect to a dignitary. 
And so the sounds of despair and, and desperation, they can be heard all throughout the empire in chapter four. Many Jews in verse three, they're, they're laying prostrate in sackcloth and ash. Again, these are outward signs of inward grief. They are fasting. If you don't know what that is, it's not eating, not drinking. For three days, three nights, they're, they're, they're weeping and, and lamenting. And, and here's an observation. Maybe you, you will agree with this. It seems that in, a, in the blink of an eye, the Jews, especially Mordecai, who had previously been perfectly okay blending in with the pagan culture around them, it seems in the blink of an eye, the Jews are just coming out of the woodwork. They're starting to, they're starting to stick out like sore thumbs. They are very visible. Calamity does this. Trial, suffering, difficulty does this. There is something about trial, the calamity, that forces us to drop our disguises, to get honest with ourselves, to get real with one another. Again, not to milk this illustration, but kind of like the boys in Sandlot. The ball goes over and they got to get real. I mean, they gotta, they're coming out of the woodwork, working together. So, so, so here in, 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 our, in our practical day-to-day -day lives, it's the, it's the death of a loved one that'll do this to us. It's the, it's the diagnosis of cancer, right? It's, it's, it's the loss of a job. The threat, the rumor of, of persecution, it rattles us, does it not? Calamity brings us to our knees. It, it, it shakes us from the deception that we are in control. It wakes us from the illusion that we are doing just fine, doing things on our own. And I want to submit to you, there is mercy in this. There is mercy when we are awakened to the fact that we, in fact, do not have everything together and we come to the end of ourselves, the end of our own resources, and we need to look somewhere else for miraculous help. Our fallen world is so filled with people doing things on their own, and it's been this way since Adam and Eve ate from the tree in the garden. They turned from dependence on God and said, no, we will follow our own way of doing things. This is, includes Mordecai, Esther, the Jews, all of us. Listen, this is our situation that you and I are born into. We're, we're born into the propensity of, of distrusting God and trying to trust in our own faculties. And so I could make the argument, I believe the word does, is that yours and my greatest need, and let's just address Christians, as Christians currently living in a, in a state of exile, waiting for Jesus to return and to make his kingdom all new again, as Christians living in exile, yours and my greatest need is to be, a, is to be constantly awakened to and shaken from our self-reliant, lukewarm religion and to be brought back to our knees and surrender to God. It's on our knees. That's the posture of true freedom and forgiveness and safety and salvation. If yours and my greatest need is to be brought back into this posture of reliance on God, and if calamity 
has the power to do this. We heard from Nick's testimony, the being, being kicked out of school. What is it when we get rattled that it's enough to get our attention? It seems to be getting Mordecai's attention. So arguably, what, I, what I'm going to offer today is arguably the most merciful thing that God can do in our lives is to allow a temporal calamity to fall on us, to shake us, and to save us from an eternal calamity. Paul is getting at this when he writes to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1, he had experienced this calamity. He wrote, we felt that we had received the death sentence. But he continues, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. As a sophomore in high school, on the morning of September 11th, I sat and I watched thousands of New Yorkers on TV, as I'm sure you did, pouring out into the streets, covered in ashes, crying out to God for help. And we're talking a city that until that moment had prided itself on the brilliance of human independence and ingenuity, right, and self-reliance, but at least in that moment, as the buildings were crumbling, that city was brought to its knees in surrender. I remember in the live feed hearing people crying out to Jesus left and right. Now, was God the first cause of such evil? Absolutely not. The word gives us no room to ascribe to him these things. He is good always and forever, but was our good God working through what Satan intended for evil that day? Absolutely he was. Was our good God working for the ultimate good of his people and the ultimate glory of his name? Absolutely. And so brothers and sisters, whether you're facing calamity this morning or not, we, we all will, we all will hold this truth in your heart. Hold what we've just looked at in your heart that God often uses calamity to bring about this merciful work of bringing us to a state of dependence on him. It's a salvific work. The posture of being emptied of our own resources and efforts and plans, that's the posture of salvation. He can save that. So maybe this morning your child is not well. Maybe your finances are thin. Maybe your spouse has left you. Maybe you are absolutely in over your head at work, at school. What we can take from this story, you guys, God is not absent from your life. You can't see him right now. That does not mean he is not there. That is what the book of Esther, it's one of the major themes that is just screaming at us. God is weaving and working even from the shadows. I promise you this, church. Take heart. 
echo Paul's prayer that, 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 that he felt like he had received a death sentence. He was asking, Lord, where are you? But in hindsight, he was able to diagnose this. It was all being used by God to help him to rely more on God than himself because it's God who raises the dead. And we mustn't mistake planning over praying, point number two. Let's look at the mistake of planning over praying. Mordecai reaches the king's gate in verse four. He's still weeping. He's still covered in ash and sackcloth. And then after Queen Esther hears of his distress from inside the palace, she sends him clothes. And Mordecai's like, no, I am not done mourning. And in verses six through eight, he communicates with Esther through one of her uh, eunuchs, uh, attendants, Hathak. And he, he hands Hathak a copy of, of Haman's decree, and he instructs him, explain this to Esther. Historically, Esther probably didn't know how to read. Persian queens were schooled in a lot of things, but, but not always literacy. And so, so Hathak needs to explain this decree to Esther, and then Mordecai says, implore Esther, command her, tell her, go to King Ahasuerus and beg his favor. Seek his grace for the Jews who will in 11 months be annihilated by Haman's evil plan. Esther, plead with him on behalf of the Jews. Now the impression that we're given here in verses one through nine, just look at the text. The impression we're given is that Mordecai goes from hearing Haman's plan to immediately mourning in the streets and then planning and plotting with Esther the way of escape. So he's rattled, he's shaken, Mordecai, he's in strategy mode, but what we are not told in this passage, we're not told whether or not he got down on his face before the Lord in prayer. It's just not here. There is no explicit mention of prayer anywhere in chapter four, anywhere in the entire book. And I know I have, uh, I have people who are saying, well, well, what about fasting? Fasting you know, often accompanies prayer. Yes, it often does, but sometimes it does not. Take Nehemiah 1, Daniel 9, Acts 13. These exhortations, they seem like two distinct things. They fasted and prayed. They fasted and prayed. They pleaded with God in prayer and fasting. If we know our New Testament enough, we know that the Pharisees loved to fast, but their hearts were far from God in dependent posture of prayer. We know that the, the, the rich young ruler loved to fast, but again, his heart was not rendered in dependence on God. My only point is this. We're not sure from chapter four whether Mordecai and the Jews responded to this calamity with genuine prayerful surrender. We don't know. We don't know. Again, the impression we're given is that the first thing Mordecai does in his morning is he jumps straight to planning instead of praying. Back to Sandlot, straight to figuring out how we get over that fence rather than going to the front door of the person who owns the yard. Mordecai wants to beg the favor of the king of Persia, but we don't see him begging the favor of the king of heaven. We just don't see it. And one scholar comments, he says this, listen to this, 
in times of crisis, despite all of our orthodox theology, our own first response is frequently the whimper of resignation or human strategy rather than the bark of robust faith in God. We believe in God, but in practice, we often react to life's crises as if we were virtual atheists. Planning before praying, human strategy before divine strategy, acting before asking. If there's any lesson we can learn from the sandlot this morning, it's that we are experts at responding to our problems in every way but the best way. Go to the door of the king. Knock on the, king, the, the, the king's door of heaven and call out to him. Now, I can tell you, look, we cannot, we cannot say with absolute certainty in chapter 4 that Mordecai and Esther and the Jews didn't do this. They very well could have cried out to the Lord. I, I hope they did. But I can tell you with absolute certainty, more times than not, I don't. I do not. And where, church, do you go first when calamity strikes? Where do you go first in the midst of that heated moment with your spouse? When you're looking at the bank account and it, things aren't lining, they're, they're just, it's not gonna happen. When your kid is sick and you're on the way to the emergency room, where do you go first because I tell you what where you go first will tell you an awful lot about where your trust actually resides when calamity strikes I don't know if you're like me I tend to camp out in my own reasoning I do a lot of internet research I want fast answers Jesus calls this leaning on your own understanding and he warns us against it and so if you are like me, memorize Isaiah 64, 4. Since ancient times, Isaiah writes, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. If you are facing calamity this morning, brother or sister, Go home this afternoon, open your Bible, get on your knees, and wait for the God who acts on your behalf. Wait for him. This is hard for us in America. I concur that we have, we, so many of us have the ability to, to make 90% of our calamities disappear with a swipe of a credit card or a doctor visit, or a repairman, or financial advisor, or a lawyer, none of which are bad in and of themselves, but those things are bad. They are detrimental if they are the first place you run in calamity before running to the king of heaven. Are you seeing that? Are we seeing this? And some of us don't, some of us don't really run anywhere because we've mastered the art of distraction. Keep calm and binge watch, I believe is actually one of Netflix's slogans. Scroll through Facebook again and again. See, distraction is when we give our attention to something more interesting. And the fact that so many Christians are inundated with distraction, it really reveals an absence of awe of God in our lives. We're just not 
We're not in wonderment toward him. I'm often not. We're not awestruck by him. We don't have this deep-seated DNA-level confidence that, man, when the storm comes, I'm running to him. He is my rock. I will wait for him. He acts on behalf of those who wait. This is the confidence that Jehoshaphat had in 2 Chronicles 20. All the enemy armies are surrounding him, and he says, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, and that is where he pasted himself in that posture, just looking and waiting for God who delivered them. Yours and my greatest need as Christians living in exile, awaiting Jesus' return, we need to constantly be awakened to and shaken from our self-reliant, lukewarm religion. We need to be brought back to our knees in surrender to God. But if our first response in calamity is more self-reliance or self-centered distraction, who will possibly save us? I mean, the writer of Hebrews, his whole point is don't ignore such a salvation as this. Who will plead our pardon? Who is in royal position to go before us, a people of often lukewarm faith, and plead our case? Point number three, the longing for a better mediator. For the Jews in Persia, their hope right here in chapter four essentially rests on Esther from an, from an earthly perspective. In verse 11, she responds to Mordecai's request. She says this, Mordecai asked her to go in and speak to the king. She says this, if any man or woman enters the king's court uninvited, Mordecai, they are to be executed. Do you understand that? Unless, of course, by some fluke, the king holds out his royal scepter, well then that man or woman is permitted to not only live, but to speak and this rule would have absolutely applied to Esther, even though at this point in the story, chapter four, she would have been the queen. She would have been married to King Ahasuerus for almost 10 years at this point in the story. And so what's going on clearly is that their honeymoon phase is over. Ahasuerus has not summoned her in 30 days and given the size of his harem, we know it's not because he's sleeping alone. So going into his court will likely cost Esther her life. And Mordecai gets the impression here that, that she's not going to, in fact, go in and, and mediate for her people, so he offers one last plea, verses 13 and 14. These are arguably the most famous verses in the entire book. Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews, for if you keep silent at this time, look at this confidence, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And Esther, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? If someone of royal influence you hear me this, here. if someone of royal influence does not plead the case for the Jews here, they are doomed, even Esther. And once Esther becomes convinced of this, she reluctantly resolves that after a three-day fast that we can only presume included prayer, 
She's going to enter the king's court as a mediator, as a go-between for God's people before Ahasuerus. Now this, it is the pinnacle resolve of this story right here where where Esther determines that she's going to do this. It It is a giant leap of courage in this young woman that could really uh, supply content for an entire sermon series. It is also a foreshadow of an even better mediator who would come. Just as Esther would leave her earthly throne to face probable danger to plead the case of a doomed people, 400 years later, Jesus too would leave his heavenly throne to face certain danger to plead the case of a doomed people. What this means is that just as God was faithful to his seemingly faithless people scattered throughout Persia by sending a mediator, Esther, to intercede, church, God remains faithful to these often faithless people scattered throughout Ashland by having sent an even better mediator to intercede on our behalf forever. Hebrews 1 says that our God's throne, unlike Ahasuerus, our God's throne is an eternal throne. And Jesus also holds a golden scepter in Hebrews 1. But unlike Ahasuerus, Jesus holds a scepter of uprightness. It says the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Do you know what this means, brothers and sisters? If in fact you are facing calamity as the Jews are in this chapter, chapter four, if you're facing trial, doubt, difficulty, suffering of any kind, here is Jesus' invitation. He's the one who holds the scepter. He says to you, enter my court freely. Those who come into my court, I will not cast out. And he extends the golden scepter. Do we see the overlap and the interplay going on here as as Esther and Ahasuerus are pointing forward to a much better mediator and a much more wonderful God who does not cast out anyone who comes into the court? I have yet to come across in all of, and I'm not a scholar, but in all of my research of other religions, I have yet to come across another God like the God of the Bible, who in all of his holiness, right, uh, the, the Allah of Islam, of the Muslim faith, right, all of his holiness, he demands that his, it is at, that his adherents rise in perfection and pull themselves up by the bootstraps and they ascend higher and higher. And conversely, the, the gods of Hinduism, man, they're a whole lot more wicked than I am, it, it seems, so you have these spectrums in the world's religions, but not do, do we, we do not have a God who exists in all of this utter holiness, but who willingly came to earth to make himself wicked like his people to die in their place so that he would raise them up to him. Do you see how unique the Christian faith is? I mean, look at how the word just, it screams Jesus in chapter four. 
Are you hearing the screams? I wish I could camp out for, I'm gonna end. I wish I could really camp out on this as a charge to you, and I'll give a, a 30 second charge. Mordecai charges Esther and he says, who knows if you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know what that makes me think of hardcore is our location here in Ashland and your vocation. Location and vocation. God has placed you here for such a time as this. I'm not reading into the text. God is sovereign. He has placed you here. He has given you the people around you in your sphere. He's given you your job. Who will you this week mediate for? Who will you, as an Esther, who will you, by name, go before the throne of grace and plead their name and say, God, save them. Bring them into your court. Extend your golden scepter. Welcome them into your kingdom. We are charged. Again, I don't believe it's looking too closely into the text. If you disagree, you can take me to Chipotle and we can talk about it, right? But who are you going to mediate for as we have been mediated by an even better king who is coming back for his people. Amen? Let's pray. That was a lot, Lord. You are a lot. I, I, I love that David prays, you know, you are too high. I can't attain all of you. I can't figure out all of your mystery, but what I know, Lord, from your word and from texts like Esther chapter 4, is that you have sent an absolutely wonderful mediator who became like me. He became my faithlessness on the cross. And he died in my place and raised to life for myself and for anyone else, Lord, to grant us faith that we would know and believe that even in the midst of calamity, you are working and you are making all things new. Let us believe that. Whatever it is that we're facing today, give us, Lord, the resolve to open your word, to get before you, and to wait. To lean not on our own understanding, but to wait. And then missionally, Lord, give us the resolve where we are in location and vocation, Lord, give us the audacity to mediate for those around us at our workplace and in our schools, that we would bring their names to you, that we would call out that you might save them. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.